Well, look, the, um, the subject that we're thinking about tonight, or the, the question, I suppose, is more Christian than we think, how the world has taken a leap of faith. And the thought behind that, um, that question is the way in which maybe Christian values might underpin some aspects of life that we might not think about and that actually we find really important in life. Um, a number of years ago, my wife and I came across the distinction. I think it was a comedian who came up with this. But anyway, we found it hugely helpful in understanding how we are as two different types of personalities because this comedian talked about the difference between putters and leavers. Now, I really want you to be doing the self-diagnostic right now on which one you are, and it's okay to give those little elbows to the person next to you if you know them well. But in, in my household, I am very much the putter, and my wife is very much the lever. And that's a good thing because, you know, two levers will just die in their own squalor, but two putters just go around arguing all the time on where they're going to put things. Um, but in the way that a lever kind of works, having observed my wonderful wife with her carefree, spontaneous attitudes to trivial possessions like bank cards and phones and keys and things like that, is that it doesn't really matter where they are. They just get left in different places. And um, they're not necessarily in the place where a putter would want to put them, because obviously a place for everything and everything in its place is a mantra to live by, right? I'm seeing nods from about half of the people in the room, which tells me about the makeup of you right here. But the good thing with levers is that you, you never lose levers. They might lose their possessions, but you never lose them because they're like the adult equivalent of Hansel and Gretel. You know, I arrive home, and I don't need to guess whether Rebecca's in the house because I just follow the trail of the items left, and I find her. You know, the shoes are there, and the scarf is there, and the coat is there, and the bag is there, and there's my wife on the sofa after a really tough day you know, having left a few, and it's great for me as well, it's a win-win, because I get to go back and put all the things away, which I love doing, you know, and if I didn't have to do that, then I'd probably be rearranging the baked bean cans and lining them up in the shelf or something like that, you know, equally important. But, you know, for putters, one of the problems can be that um, we also like to rationalize things, you know, a good decluttering exercise is kind of cleansing for the soul, not only for the household, right? And this got me in a bit of more serious trouble a number of years ago when I was going through one of those decluttering times, and we'd had some cards up on the shelf. Um, it was a, a few years back. Oliver had just been born, and you know, Oliver's birth was a, a while coming and wasn't exactly straightforward, so having the cards there to remind us of it was particularly poignant. But I had stupidly got into my head that it was time for them to come down. I hadn't really thought about what I was doing. So I got all the cards, and I decided now was the time to put them in the recycling so that we could make space for other things. And so I did, thinking not much about it, but just feeling good about the fact I created space in the house. Rebecca came home, immediately noticed the cards weren't there, and said, where are the cards? These are Oliver's birth cards, and these are baptism cards and celebration cards, and there's some really important messages to me there. And I, I suddenly had that moment, the stomach just dropped through the floor. And I ran out to the recycling, but the recycling truck had been that morning, and they were completely gone. And so we lost all these cards. Now, why am I telling you that story? Well, look, what I'm going to suggest this evening is that um, since a period in history that is sometimes called the Enlightenment, which was a time around the 17th and the 18th century, as a culture in the West, we've done some decluttering. Uh, we've thrown a bunch of things out to make space for new ideas. And that's been, on, in many regards, a really good thing. We've um, got rid of you know, a lot of superstition, and instead we've embraced reason and science more. We've moved from, astrology to, um, sorry, from astronomy to astrology. 
And we've moved from kind of uniformity, everyone has to believe the same thing, to embracing greater freedom and plurality of beliefs is now okay. And not, you're not straightjacketed. There's been some really good moves there. But like in any decluttering exercise, if you haven't been very careful, you can throw some things out which you end up really missing. And I think that one of the things that's happened is that some of our core foundational beliefs about what it means to be a human being that underpin the values that we hold really dear in the West about human dignity and human equality, uh, values which define us in many, many senses in the West, but the beliefs that underpin those have been thrown out. And they've been thrown out as we try to declutter, you know, kind of life. And so we've kind of chucked out Christian God and we've kind of brought in reason and science and they're not necessarily opposed. But we now find ourselves a little bit like I was. The stomach's gone through the floor and we feel, ah, maybe we've chucked too much out. That's the hypothesis that I'm putting out there for this evening. And I'd love to engage with you on. And the way that I propose to do that is to think about some of those areas, um, particularly two areas, the dignity of humanity and the equality of human beings. So dignity and equality. And just consider those and consider why that's so important, but also consider how it is that Christianity particularly and uniquely underpins those beliefs and maybe what is a path back for us so that we can have them underpinned and not lose them completely. Let's think a bit about the um, dignity of humanity to start with. There was a really important text that was written in the first millennia, first thousand years um, AD, in about the fourth century, but one of the most important texts for the whole period, by a man called Boethius, and it's called The Consolation of Philosophy, or The Comfort of Philosophy. And in the book, he imagines himself having a conversation with Lady Philosophy, so kind of philosophy personified. But he is struggling, and so he depicts himself in a prison in darkness, and he's trying to work out why he's there. And Lady Philosophy says to him these words. She says, I understand the cause of your sickness. You have forgotten who you are. And that's really my hypothesis for this evening, that we've forgotten who we are. And if we don't re-grasp, renew who we are, then we're going to end up going down some difficult and potentially dark roads and find ourselves in some places we don't want to be. When we think about the dignity of humanity, it's often a phrase that you know, people talk about, that human beings are dignified and they're important and they're valuable. But there are two broad stories or narratives, I suggest to you, that are told in our culture that are actually in competition on this point. One I would call the naturalistic narrative or story, and the other one I'd call the cultural story. Let me first talk about the naturalistic story. Naturalistic as distinct from naturistic, right? One's about nudity, not that one. Naturalistic about saying that all that there is is the natural world. There's no supernature, no God, no spirituality. It's just the, the stuff that you can touch and move. That's all that there is. This is the naturalistic story. And humanity has been reimagined through this story. And you know a lot of the narratives. You also know a lot of the key storytellers. One of them is Richard Dawkins. He writes this on that story. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. As that unhappy poet A.E. Hausman put it, for nature, heartless, witless nature will neither care nor know. And then Dawkins concludes, DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. In other words, when all's said and done, when you remove the platitudes, when you take away the sugar coating and the niceties, 
when you really confront reality about who we are, we are just a collection of atoms that has come together over a long, long period of time, but there's no ultimate purpose. Uh, there's no ultimate value to you. There's no good, no bad. Those are just constructs that we make up. And so there's no ultimate difference why you should consider yourself more valuable than another collection of atoms, whether a dog or a chair or anything else. And under that story, you just are, and you have to dance to the music of that rather brutal, cold world. But of course, you know, we, we admire Richard Dawkins as a biologist, but we tend not to buzz off that kind of philosophy. So he's celebrated rightly as a biologist, but not particularly as a great philosopher of humanity. And indeed, his demeanor can often be a bit cold and affronting. So there's the naturalistic story, but then there's a separate story on competition, I put it to you, and this is the cultural story. And this is the story that I guess we read on a thousand billboards, that friends say to each other to uplift one another when times are hard, that actually infuses and give colors to our, our values and our liberties that we take so important, um, that we hold so importantly. And this story goes like this. You are special. You matter. You are valuable. Every human being is precious and beautiful in a unique way. And your value, your importance, is not contingent, is not dependent on what you've achieved or on how able or not able you are or on the color of your skin. You are valuable because you're a person, a unique person with beauty and dignity and importance. Now, of course, that is a far more attractive narrative. But the problem is they both can't be true. Do you see? They're in contradiction. If you just chuck together as atoms, then that second story is just sugarcoating. But it's not really true at base. It has no deep foundations to it. And we know which one we find more attractive, but the question is, which one is true? And so if we're going to hold the dignity of humanity, where does that come from? Christianity has underpinned that for generations. And... You know, it's underpinned that because of a doctrine called the image of God that says you've been made in God's image and therefore you are a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece because God has made you uniquely you and he's given his image to every human being regardless of age or gender or race um, or achievements or abilities or disabilities. That image is something that everyone carries and that's what sets you apart from a table or a dog. And you all have it and therefore there's a fundamental dignity to every human being. So there's a Christian underpinning, goes back 2,000 years for that belief, but here's the question, if we take away the belief of Christianity and we want to still hold to the cultural story, how do we do that? Second area, though, is the equality of humanity. Similarly with the equality of humanity, over the past 100 years or so, there have been really important advances in this area. Let's think about three. First of all, let's think about something that's very culturally um, relevant, which is racial equality. Um, you remember back to the awful murder of George Floyd and the protest that rightly kicked off about that, that highlighted the fact that as a Western society, we have not yet made the strides and the progress in racial equality that we should have, and there's much work that needs to be done on this. I wonder if, like me, you felt sick to your stomach when um, we, England lost in the final of the European Championships on penalties, and that wasn't the thing that sickened me, really. That's something which, you know, I'm sad about for a week, but I was sad for a lot longer about what it exposed, because three young black footballers took the penalties and missed. Could have been someone who was white. It wasn't because they were black, of course. And you knew 
And I was just praying that it wouldn't be, but you just knew that there was going to be racism. And so it was. And how quickly a country could move from swinging, sing, singing Sweet Caroline, how good, so good, so good, so good, to the ugliness of our hideous racism. Because two young men had been, three young men had been bold enough to step up and have a go, and suddenly they're being persecuted for the color of their skin. Now, I know that's wrong. You know that's wrong. But here's the question. Not everyone believes it's wrong, and on what basis do we defend it as being wrong? You might now know that, for example, in France, our neighbors, that the far right is rising and that there is genuine anxiety about who will be voted in in the next election. How do you appeal to someone who has far-right tendencies to say, no, no, such you know, xenophobia or racism is wrong? You see, under Christianity, there's famous um, dictum that the Apostle Paul said in, in Galatians 3.28, where he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, for you're all one in Christ. In other words, when he said that, it wasn't at all obvious in the ancient world that everyone was equal. In fact, people did not think everyone was equal. Societies thought themselves as superior to other societies. A lot of it was jostling for position. The equality of humanity on the basis of race was not there at all. But when Paul said that, it lit a kind of fuse under ancient society and started to breed about, started to bring about racial equality. And then bring it up more recently, rather than going 2,000 years back, let's go just 60 years back to the modern human rights movement. You must not think that it was secular liberalism that infused and empowered the human rights movement um, that started particularly in the US. Now, listen to a guy called David Chappell, who's an eminent historian, not himself, not actually a Christian. And this is his assessment in his book, A Stone of Hope, on what was behind the human rights movement of people like Martin Luther King Jr., he said, the black movement's nonviolent soldiers were driven not by modern liberal faith in human reason, but by older, seemingly more durable beliefs that were rooted in Christian and Jewish myth. Specifically, they drew from a prophetic tradition that runs from David and Isaiah in the Old Testament through Augustine, Christian thinker, Martin Luther, to Reinhold Niebuhr, modern Christian thinker in the 20th century. In other words, he's done the work, and you can read the book, and he does chapter after chapter after chapter and just shows how... The civil rights movement was fueled not by secular liberalism, but by Christianity. So whether you go back 2,000 years or 60 years, racial equality and the belief in racial equality has come about from Christianity. And so we want to say that's true, and it is true. But if you take away the belief, what upholds your values? Not only racial equality, but gender equality. My wife, um, I mentioned earlier, she's... Um, not only a lever, there's more to it than that, she's also a reconstructive surgeon. And um, in surgery in the UK, 54% of all surgical trainees are women, but only 12% of all consultants, that's the most senior jobs, are women. There's a long way to go when it comes to gender equality. And Rebecca has been very involved with women in surgery about trying to promote that and trying to carry that through. One of her um, kind of mentor figures that she works with is a bit older than her from the earlier generation. And she tells the story of 30 years ago when she got pregnant as a young female surgeon. She went to her boss, her consultant surgeon, and she said, I, I'm pregnant and I'm going to just give you a heads up because I'll need to take some time off you know, when the baby comes. And he said, congratulations, that's great news. I'll expect your resignation tomorrow. Now, we, we feel it's wrong. I can see the shake of the heads. It is wrong. 
But on what basis is it wrong? That's the question. The value of gender equality, where does that come from? And again, I want to suggest to you and put it out to you that it comes from Christianity. I had that phrase earlier from the Apostle Paul, neither male nor female, slave nor free. He's not saying that there's no distinction between the sexes. He's saying that there's equality between the sexes. You know, it was utterly radical in the ancient times when the New Testament was written that women were directly addressed by the New Testament. Aristotle did not think women to be equal in value with men, so he wouldn't even write to them. They weren't allowed to gather in the public assembly in Greece. Not only in the New Testament are women directly addressed in the same culture, but they're actually addressed first. You know why that is, right? If you greet someone first when two people walk into a room, it's kind of affirmation of their dignity. In other words, the Apostle Paul was explicitly pushing against the patriarchal discriminatory systems of the time. And where had he got that from? From Jesus Christ, who treated women with an astonishing dignity, such that they flocked to him. That is why it was women who were the first ones at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. That's why it was women who had the dignity of being the first eyewitnesses, elevated when the men were scared, as is often the case. The women were the ones who showed real courage. That's from Christianity. That's not just something which came about from secular liberalism. So racial equality, gender equality, and lastly, let me talk about equality regardless of age or disability or ability. In other words, equality even when people are vulnerable. We're a society where rightly we invest a huge amount of time and money into people who are vulnerable in protecting the vulnerable, looking after the rights of the vulnerable, and rightly so. Um, it's abhorrent to think that just because someone is weak or vulnerable or disabled that they're somehow less valuable as a human being. And we need at the moment to be re-inhabiting that as we discuss important matters like the beginning of life and the end of life and care for the elderly and vulnerable. But where does that belief come from? Well, again, in the ancient world, please don't sugarcoat it. Don't think that in the ancient world when Christianity arose that everybody was walking around with Greek philosophy thinking we must look after the vulnerable. That's not the case at all. In AD 165, when the plague swept through the Roman Empire, um, there's loads of reports from Roman historians about how the vulnerable were treated. Those who were well fled the towns and cities. The vulnerable, the moment that they showed any kind of symptoms, were kicked out of family homes onto the street where, because of lack of care, they died. But not with Christianity, because the Christians stayed in the cities and the towns. And they didn't only do it for that plague, but they did it for subsequent plagues. So much so that by the, by the early part of the 5th century, that actually you had Roman emperors writing, wondering why people weren't learning from the Christians about how they started to care for the vulnerable. In other words, it was Christianity that changed the game on it. As, um, let me read this to you from Tom Holland's brilliant book, Dominion. As you may know, Tom Holland is not a Christian, but he talks about the Christian care for the vulnerable, writing this. The heroes of the Iliad, favorites of the gods, golden and predatory, have scorned the weak and downtrodden. So too for all the honor that Julian paid them had philosophers. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character, who through no fault of their own had fallen on evil days, might conceivably merit assistance when they were vulnerable. In other words, there was no care for the vulnerable in the ancient world until Christianity came along. 
So as I draw things together, I guess what I'm saying is that the values we hold, because of their underpinning in Christianity, show that we owe far more to Christianity than we think. And so therefore I'm suggesting that if you hold those values, as I think you do judging by your nonverbal reactions to the things I've said, then you're probably more Christian than you think. But here's the challenge for us. My father-in-law is an architect, but I don't think you need to be an architect to work this metaphor out. The architecture of Western civilization at a values level is you know, built with these foundational things of human dignity and human equality. We know that, right? Because, for example, um, with the declaration in 1776 um, in the US, this famous phrase that I'll read to you, you remember this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's the architecture for Western civilization in many senses, but notice how it has a foundation and it has a building. The foundation is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal and are endowed with by their creator certain alienable rights. That's the foundation, but what we've done in the West, if we said we won't have the foundations, thanks very much, we'll just have the building. And so we have the second part. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we think if we lift the building off its foundations that it will still stand, Come on, friends, you don't have to be an architect to know it doesn't work like that. Indeed, Jesus has told one of his most famous parables about the danger of trying to build on no foundations at all when the storm comes. And could one of the challenges that we've experienced in the last two years of COVID have been that the storm has hit and suddenly we don't have the foundations? A friend said to me in the midst of the protests about Black Lives Matter, he said, Pete, what is going on? The world is burning. What was going on? Could it be that we were being shaken and our foundations or lack of them were suddenly being exposed? And so my plea, I suppose, in one level is to rediscover the foundations that can underpin the architecture of the building. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, I think we need to realize what we've done. Because in trying to build on God's foundations but not acknowledging them as such, I suppose what we're doing is we're committing a kind of cosmic plagiarism now, look, plagiarism can be kind of funny or it can kind of be pretty offensive, but we certainly don't like it. I wonder if you remember in 2016 when Melania Trump plagiarized, or her campaign did at least, or her office plagiarized huge swathes of a speech from um, Michelle Obama in 2008. And it was, you know, and suddenly there was all denial from the Trump campaign and everything like that. And then people started literally putting side by side the speeches and they were verbatim the same for paragraphs of it. And of course, the denial didn't work. And in the end, some poor aid was kind of offered up like a sacrificial lamb to say, I did, it was my fault. I didn't realize what I was doing, right? You know, when we did that, everyone howled and there was indignation and there was anger and how could she do this? And that was just plagiarism of a speech. So how do you think God feels if we plagiarize something as important as human dignity, and we say, we'll have the values, but we won't have the belief, thank you very much. That's from us. We'll, we'll call it secular liberalism, thanks very much. Romans chapter 1 actually talks about that. It says, in the context of the Roman world, although people knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's God's assessment of cosmic plagiarism. In other words, if you don't acknowledge what you get from God, the gifts of human dignity, human equality, the underpinnings of the values we hold so dear that hold up our society, then it is deeply offensive to God. But here's the wonderful thing. 
when Jesus came, he came to fix that, to deal with our cosmic plagiarism and to rebuild the house. And he did that in three ways as I close. First of all, he reaffirmed human dignity. What greater affirmation could there be to human beings being made in the image of God than God himself in human form comes and takes on human form? You know, if you walk around London, you sometimes see those little blue plaques that say something like Charles Darwin or someone lived here or the Queen visited here 10 years ago, and they give a dignity to the house, right? Well, is there a greater dignity than God comes and inhabits human form, becomes a human being? In other words, it reaffirms human dignity. It kind of rules out any objection. Anyone who says a person is not dignified on the basis of race or gender or disability or non-achievement, you say, nonsense. The Son of God became a human being. And therefore, that has settled the debate once and for all. Secondly, in Jesus' life, we see how to be a human being, how to treat people with dignity. The weak and the vulnerable flocked to him. He spoke truth to power when he saw prejudice and oppression. He treated people with an astonishing equality given the age he was living in. Living in. He affirmed people. He listened to people. In other words, he shows you what it looks like to be a person who labors and longs for justice, so much so that he was even prepared to die for it, to lay down his life for it because it matters so much. So firstly, he affirms human dignity. Secondly, he models what it looks like to live as a human being with dignity and quality. And thirdly, when he dies on the cross, which is what his life was all about, he takes the judgment for the ways that you and I have committed cosmic plagiarism. For all of the ways we've said, God, I'll have the values, but I don't want the beliefs. Thank you very much. I'll take the things like human dignity and equality, but I won't make reference to you. He pays for the cosmic plagiarism. And by so doing, he offers forgiveness, and then he changes you to become an agent for dignity and equality in the world. Last thing. A good illustration of that is the man John Newton. He lived as a horrible human being for the first 25 years of his life. He was a transatlantic slave trader, ran a slave ship, drunkard, abused women by his own admission. And then he turned his life around to become someone who campaigned at great personal cost for the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade and started treating people with equality and dignity. Why did he do that? Well, you know why he did that, because you probably know the most famous hymn he ever wrote, which gives you the reason why he did that. It goes like this, I won't sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. In other words, he sees in Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection the turning point, and it changed his life around, and it made him an agent for dignity and equality in the world. And that's the same offer that's available to all of us today. Well, look, you've been really patient. You've listened for about my time. I'm getting a nod from Honey. So I think what we'll do now, Honey, is... Are you going to come up and explain what we're doing?